I'm Gigi Johnson, and this is Amplify Music Conversations, where we captured the voices and music panels from the Amplify Music 2021 virtual conference. Over the course of the panels, you'll hear more than 100 panelists from a wide variety of cities and countries, each working in their local communities to recover from the challenges and changes of the pandemic. You'll hear about new community models, collaborations, and ways of organizing, each recovering and transforming their own music environment. This is a session on government action and inaction, and this in many ways is an interesting bridge from uh, a year ago when we got together that a lot of us were incredibly frustrated that things were so slow to move. And this year we're having to deal with what motion is happening a year in and how that, that works. So let me have our wonderful panel get started in introducing themselves briefly because we have three really different perspectives here. Michael Bracey, can you start us off? Hey, Gigi. And hi, everybody. Um, my name is Michael Bracey. I'm been incredibly uh, blessed to work at the intersection of music and public policy for a little bit over 20 years, um, currently as co-founder of the Music Policy Forum. I'm just so happy to be here today. And you are sitting in what city? I am in the Washington, D.C. area. Excellent. And then Mark David. Hi, I'm Mark David. I'm the founder and CEO of something called the Music Venue Trust, which is a UK-based not-for-profit. Represents just over 950 grassroots music venues. Uh, we act on their behalf working around government on issues facing them, particularly in COVID, you know, around the whole how to reopen them, what kind of safety measures we need, what support they need during this period. Excellent. And you are joining us from what lovely location? Uh, I'm joining you from Barcelona. Well, just outside Barcelona, a little, little town called Villanova y la Geltru. So you are multi-city. <laughs> yes, indeed. Represent, representing London and the whole of the UK and, and talking to you about it to you from Europe. <laughs> Great. And then we'd like to introduce to you Dr. Sipo Sitoli. Is I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, it is Dr. Sipo Sitoli. And uh, thank you very much for inviting me. And I am broadcasting from Devon, uh, just uh, next to the ocean. And unfortunately, I'm in my hotel room. So I, I, I was in Johannesburg where I work and live. I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a founder of and an owner of Afrocentric Agency, and also I'm a research fellow at the University of Johannesburg. I'm a cultural practitioner and consultant, and i um, been very much involved in the development of the, of particularly the music in South Africa, and my interests are really on music and society, and I also help government with their funding strategy. Michael Bracey. What are you seeing now as happening? I mean, you're in the midst of uh, a gigantic amount of money being spent in all sorts of issues happening. Can you bring the audience up to speed on what the heck is happening in the United States broadly? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, you know, it, it, everybody in the United States knows and probably most of the global audience knows the United States is sort of unusual as a developed country that has really not invested policy or resources into um, understanding or supporting their music ecosystems. It's, it's been a, a huge blind spot in this country forever. And we've been, uh, a lot of people have been working very, very hard for a long period of time to try to address it. And, and now in the midst of the pandemic, we finally have, you know, the first significant action, um, you know, by the United States Congress on support of live music uh, through the Shuttered Venue Operator Grants, um, allocating $16.25 billion towards independent music venues, which remarkably 
is more money than if you added up the cultural investment through the National Endowment of the Arts, the National Endowment of the Humanities, throughout their combined 50 years of, of work, it still would not come to that $16 billion. So the scale of this, of this investment is unprecedented. Um, of course, it comes with significant challenges. You can't create a multi-billion dollar program out of whole cloth with a constituency that doesn't has not been part of the federal funding uh, process before with a lot of heartaches and challenges, especially when you're designing a program like they've done with the Shuttered Venue Grant, which is very, very tightly defined to only meet certain criteria. It's not meant for the larger sort of regional or national um, concert pr uh, promoters or venues. It's really meant for local independent venues. And so the whole, you know, creating the mechanism around who can apply for the money, how the money is going to be allocated. Those are really complicated and tough technical issues. And now we're living through the frustration and the anger, which is bubbling when it's taken four months to kind of get that program up and running and that money start to go out the door. But hopefully when we take a step back after the money has been spent and people can really understand the value and the importance of supporting our local music ecosystems, that can then be a jumping off point so we can have bigger, broader conversations about the role of federal government as it relates to our music ecosystems across the board. And the government's probably what's more than the U.S. not being ready systemically to deal with mass numbers of people. So we'll come back to that. Let's go to Mark David, because you're dealing with many countries as well as the U.K. who are all looking from a different set of cultural and economic lenses. What are you seeing in terms of government action and, and the challenges of it right now? It's kind of similar to, to Michael's experience, except that I would say that through a fortunate set of circumstances, we were probably more prepared. We, the, the Music Venue Trust was founded in 2014. We had already been working with government in the UK for six years. So when this came along, there was the basis of a conversation in place. It, it wasn't quite as difficult for the government to understand what the challenges and what the problems might be. We did have a body of evidence about the economic impact, the number of jobs, the, the likely outcome of, you know, the closure of these venues, not just for themselves, but on their local economies, that perhaps was absent in the US. And that position is really reflected across Europe, to be honest, where we have a, a number of organisations grouped together under something called Live DMA, um, so there are most of the nations of the U European Union are represented within that organization, and they each have their own associations. In terms of the, the broader thing of cultural support, weirdly, probably the UK is the outlier within Europe in that in the, the cultural support across a number of years is very similar, frankly, to the US. It's something we've been working on. We, we'd had some success in the last two years, but quite minor. Suddenly, the amount of money that has been piled in for the UK venues is radically different in the same way it's radically different in the US. So before this crisis, just under 3% of our grassroots music venues in the UK had received any sort of public subsidy. That has now risen to 71%, um, which is obviously huge. We don't know whether that's a sea change in the culture and, and the way that cultural funding is distributed in the, in the kind of way that Michael was imagining there, or whether this is simply a one-off to reflect this crisis. We kind of hope it's the, the former. <laughs> We'd like to see this be a genuine change in the way that government views culture and probably, frankly, bring us more into line with the way that Europeans 
in general view culture, although that's not the same across all European countries. Our model for culture and investment into contemporary music is probably France, where most grassroots music venues receive some sort of subsidy. Um, and the level of subsidy they receive is very significant. In fact, in France, if you are a French venue programming French language music, more than 60% of your income is, is a grant from the from different funding pots in order to support you to do that work. So what that's the, the gold standard. Just following up on it a bit, though, what was the trigger for Music Venue Trust even being created and funding, et cetera? Because you're commenting it was already there, but was there already a crisis scene and then supported, so that was one of the benefits here? Yeah, the the, the trust was created as a grassroots up organization. I myself run a venue which was which is housed in a in a re, repurposed toilet, believe it or not. So we built a venue about nearly 30 years ago. Around about 10 to 15 years ago, we had a crisis already in the UK, promote, prompted, frankly, by gentrification through underinvestment and through the radical changes the music industry was going into. We lost 35% of our trading venues in a 10-year period, and that provoked venue owners like me to come together and to create the Music Venue Trust as a charity to represent our interests. And I think this is something that's now happened in the US with the creation of NEVA, the National Independent Venues Alliance Association. Um, and that's, in our view, that's that's probably required everywhere else in the world now. We need to get organized and recognize that we have shared challenges and problems that override the natural competition we have to get talent or to promote our own venue in a kind of marketing way. There are things that we all face that we need these kind of collective organizations to be able to talk to government, to be able to have practical conversations and to acquire the data and evidence that justifies those conversations. Sipo, um, what about South Africa? Uh, is there previous government engagement? Is this new? How has government stepped in and stepped around? So in South Africa, there, when we realized the challenges that we faced, government stepped in, but the biggest challenge was we were not ready in the sense that um, we had to define who the artist is, who qualifies for funding, because the money was made available. But the question was, who qualifies for funding? Is a busker on the, uh, at a shopping mall who plays guitar next to a, a pay machine an artist? Or is it an artist that has got uh, organized um, uh, 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 bookings and, and, and confirmed bookings? That was one part that uh, government faced. So it actually exposed us in the sense that when we thought the industry was structured, but it was not organized because there is no proper qualification or accreditation system that would say you are an artist and you are not. So that was one uh, first problem. Then the second problem was that now government is now making this money available, but how do you apply? particularly because of, um, I mean, we are still, uh, we, are, we want to say we are the first world, but a big chunk of our country is still developing and access, access to internet and, and, and things that one would do in a city uh, wouldn't just happen in the village. And um, so the issue of then again, how to distribute uh, uh, the, the, the funds were one of the issues that government um, uh, faced. But uh, what we also saw even when government opened up applications to say, if, if, you, if you have lost income as, as an artist or as a practitioner, uh, please apply. We only received about 6,000 applications 
in an industry that employs 1.1 million. Now you could tell that that is because of the of access. And also at the time when, when, when funding was made available, we had just gone into hard lockdown. So people who don't have um, computers in, uh, 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 in their houses or, or, or scanning and, and, and faxing machines could not go out to go to an internet cafe. So they were also locked out uh, out of that process. But um, government did step in and provided um, millions of, of, of US dollars to, to assist. Right now, I'm in the middle of another distribution of 300 million rands. I don't remember what it is in, 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 um, in, in dollars, where government came up with two funding streams. One was for organizations that have got employees who have lost uh, because they, they, there is no activity. So they, there is a wage subsidy. The government says you can apply for a wage subsidy. The other stream was for anybody who's got crazy ideas about how to get the economy working again, the creative economy to apply. Uh, we've just distributed now about um, just yeah, uh, 300 million rands of that. So right as, as I'm speaking, people are excited because um, they, they shows that are already being, um, I can see they are being um, advertised uh, on social media and they are funded by, by the funding agency, which um, I now sit on the board of. But um, I, I guess what, what we are facing is this definition now going forward uh, as to who, who really is the artist uh, and whether we're going to learn from this exercise to start um, uh, collecting data and, and having a process of if something like this happens again, you can, through a press of a button, run a report that will tell you how uh, who is active and who is not active. So how does that play into the UK and the US as to the, the data and the connectivity of who's an artist and how sort of missing infrastructure to even sort of communicate and sign up? I, I, well, <clears throat> not very well, actually. I, I mean, I was quite interested in what Sipa was saying there because actually one of the things that the UK has got badly wrong is that although the venues are now and some of the infrastructure, like our festivals, have managed to access some of this funding, there has been a, a massive gap in the middle of this for our freelancers and particularly our artists and crew where there has really not been funding available, frankly, because government doesn't understand the, the, the kind of career options that people have chosen. They've encouraged them to become micro-businesses that self-support themselves. Then they decided that micro-businesses weren't adequately structured in order to receive grants. <laughs> So it's kind of disappointing, really. I, I think that process that Sipo was describing there hasn't really happened. There hasn't been an assessment of who might need these grants. There's been a lot of assessment about saving the infrastructure. There's been a lot of work about understanding why festivals might need money, why promoters or agents might need money. But the people who have been left out of the loop are the, the people right at the front line, the artists and the crew. And that hasn't really yet been addressed in the UK. It's slightly better in the rest of Europe, I will say, that in fact there have been grants for individuals, for artists, for management agencies in a way there haven't been so much in the UK. It's not, it's not uniform, though. It, it is quite patchy. It, it, it's some people have managed to work out and get it. There have been some project grants, which I think is what Sipo was describing there. People with strange ideas of what they could do during lockdown have been better able to access funding, but there hasn't been a general safety net for artists and crew. 
And I think, you know, in, in, in the States, it's just such a different mindset. You know, I, I, as I said before, I just think we're so out of step with the rest of the world. And, and, and one way to think about it is it starts from a decades long sort of assumption that we're going to think about music in the context of a consumer marketplace, that music is competing with video games and with Netflix and with Hollywood and TV and, and sports. And that it's, it's, it's more about, you know, um, amassing eyeballs for advertisers and creating sort of consumer products or experiences that people want to put money into. And it doesn't start from the, the place where it needs to start, which is recognizing the fundamental humanity of music. And that we need to think about music, not in a consumer context or a Wall Street context. We need to think about music fundamentally from a, a, from a public health context, you know, a, a, a togetherness context. And so there's sort of three things that are happening that I think are really inspiring and really exciting. And, and I'm really optimistic about this. I think the first is, again, we're, we have the you know, sort of acceleration of a fundamentally different relationship between the music community in terms of recognizing that the if, if they want to have stronger, more resilient and more equitable local music ecosystems, that is going to be dictated by what happens at the federal level, because the federal government has got to enforce the rules of a fair marketplace. And where the marketplace is broken, they either have to take action or they have to put money and resources into supporting the non-commercial marketplace. And we have not done that very well for a long, long time, if ever. So the first thing that's, that's happening, and I think this is going to be part of the, you know, the, 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 you know, kind of the benefit, you know, the Save Our Stages campaign and, and mobilization is now we know it's possible and that you don't have to go to Congress with the solution. You go to Congress with the problem and they will actually work with you to figure out what they can do, through, you know, through policy or through funding. So this whole notion of non-transactional engagement, you don't have to like, everything doesn't have to be a campaign, just build relationships, have dialogue, engage your elected officials, engage the administration, and then we'll see what goes from that. You know, a really great example is today, just before today's session, the Senate Commerce Committee had the confirmation hearing for a nominee for the Federal Trade Administration, Lena Khan, who President Biden has put up to be an FTC commissioner, who is one of the smartest, you know, young, smart, music-centric thinkers around competition policy. You put Lena Khan on the FTC and God knows where the stuff goes in terms of all the things we're talking about. So you've got this federal level, which is you know, super important to engage in the long term. Then you've got this local level and more to Gigi's point and, and the things that a lot of people in this conference think about, just having a, a, both a qualitative and quantitative understanding of your scene. How do you document that? How do you think about it? How do you understand it? How do you protect it? How do you make it thrive? How do we think about, you know, not taking our culture and putting it in a museum, but really thinking about cultural continuity and, and, and generational handoff and all that stuff. And a big part of that is something, again, that we talked about in, in previous conferences is this whole notion of democratizing, you know, these data tools. You know, it should not be. I give enormous credit to the early adapters of the United States that invested in music censuses and research projects and strategies and trying to kind of get the team together. But this cannot and should not and must not be like a six figure, $100,000 idea. You know, we need to really be decentralizing access to how do you get quantitative data, qualitative data? How do you start to really understand your scene? And how do you put together actionable projects and initiatives that help you advance it? So I'm talking too long, Gigi, but just to, to wrap up, we're super stoked and very excited. Um, you know, that Music Policy Forum, one of our major initiatives this year has been the Reopen Every Venue Safely or REVS initiative, which has 18 pilot cities in the United States. And Mark has been running a, a version of it in, in, in the UK, which is looking at one very simple project. How do we reopen live music as quickly and safely as possible 
when science allows and how do we talk about it with musicians, venue employees and audiences? And how does local government work as a partner to really do that collaboratively? So little projects like that hopefully give us some insight into where we can take this stuff big picture. And I would say that's not a little project. You guys have been putting a tremendous amount of effort behind just moving up, moving the parts here. So we've got about 10 minutes left in this panel. And I guess my question to kind of move us further forward here is, what should people be doing themselves as artists, creators, venues, et cetera? What can people do about this? And what can they go to their own governments, local, national, international, uh, to move the dial, to stand at the government docket, to work with their local communities? I mean, should they find out what you guys are doing, connect with different people? What is sort of the models? And then where do we go from this? You know, will people look back at all this and kind of go, oh, well, we put our money into the arts in 2021. Now we don't need to any. I mean, so how do we sort of keep this from being a been there, done that? What happens differently? I want to come in um, because the biggest challenge we have, and I guess it's across the world, is government recognizing that the music is an industry, that it is an industry and that it contributes to the economy. You know, and when we were facing this pandemic, we started to pull out some statistics to say, did you know that um, the music industry contributes or the cultural and creative sector contributes um, about 4.2 billion US to the country's GDP and that it employs 1.1 million people, whether loosely or, 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 or formally, that when this, when this pandemic hits, it is affecting a sector and industry. Everyone was talking about every others. Let's save the tourism. Let's save the mining. Let's save the, the, this particular sector. But people think that the music is just an entertainment when there is some um, function, you must just get a band to come and perform. Not realizing that it employs people. It's, it's an entire value chain. So what should people do? I think we've done enough to make governments to realize that this is a sector that needs funding and it needs to be part of budgets every year, not just as a, by the way, we're going to give the Department of Arts and Culture a few millions, you know. So formalizing what is already formal is going to be one of the things that we need to do. We can't have this industry go back down to the levels that we saw. And, and we just need to continue to lobby. My wish will be every time when government announces its budget, there must be a set percentage that you already know that a certain percentage of the, the, the total fiscals will go to the music sector, not just uh, as, as and when the finance minister feels like uh, they want to give it so much money this year. I think France already does that from way back from the 60s. Yeah. At national, at provincial, at local, you already know that a, total, a, a certain percentage of the total budget goes to the arts. They, they also have a, a mechanism whereby the live music industry has a tariff upon it for every show that goes into a pot to fund the grassroots. So they're yes. reinvesting all the time. Yes. Um, I know we're very short of time, so I'm going to give you my burst of manifesto, most of which Michael has probably already heard several times. Number one, as Joe Strummer said, without people, you're nothing. The first thing you've got to do is you've got to get people together and you've got to get them organized to recognize the value of what they have, the things they share in common, and what can they can achieve if they all work together collectively. You can look at our example to do that. We're very proud of it. We're a grassroots organization that came together and we recognized what we had in common rather than what divided us, and we started building around that. 
Number two, you need data and evidence. As Sipo has just described there, we are terrible as an industry at describing who we are and what we do. When you roll all our stuff together, in the UK alone, we put on over 250,000 performances every year in our venues. That constitutes most of the performances that are happening in the UK. We employ a vast number of artists. We generate a huge amount of money for the economy. You also need to recognize a second part of data. It's not just about what we do. We are the destination. The reason people leave their house at 11 o'clock at night is to go to a nightclub. The reason somebody leaves their house and goes to a restaurant is because they're going to an event. People don't just, I've always said it's my kebab thing. I've eaten a lot of kebabs. I've never left my house at 11 o'clock to eat a kebab. I eat a kebab when I leave a live event. I, that's what keeps kebab shop owners in. That's what keeps taxis running. We are the, the absolute ignition engine of the nighttime economy. And we need to recognize with data and evidence that that's what we do. And then the final thing I would say is, and this is again a bit of a slogan, slogan for us, people who say it cannot be done should get out of the way of the people doing it. Our industry is absolutely full of people who are satisfied with the status quo. Ignore those people. Genuine change is done by people who can get themselves organized, get the data together, and get it to the right people. And Michael is right. If you go into government with a lot of people saying the same thing, a lot of organized evidence, and you say, this is our problem, this is what you could do to help us solve it, they start thinking of solutions, but they don't even know who we are at the start of these conversations. That's the first thing you've got to get done. You've got to get active, you've got to get organized, you've got to get data and evidence, you've got to get our together. And, and I would just just build on that. I, you know, this, you know, events like this are giving us opportunities. To, I mean, this is so freaking obvious, but to have global conversations that were not accessible three years ago, four years ago, and it's really, um, you know, for those that have the economic power to be able to be on platforms like this and can afford a data plan and the rest of it, it really does open up a world of information and resources that is so much more accessible than when we try to do this organizing work 20 years ago before we had social media. So for people who are just sort of dipping their toe in and trying to figure out where can they fit in with their limited bandwidth, there are organizations clearly that will give you marching orders if you have an organization that you feel like represents your interests or your values. There are events like this. There are events like the the Music Policy Forum event we do every Friday, two o'clock Eastern that are good opportunities to hear from experts. There's all sorts of different ways that you can plug in and you can follow the lead. You don't have to feel like you have to reinvent the wheel and and do competitive infrastructure. You can just fit into a community of like-minded individuals that are trying to change things. Well, thanks for listening to Amplify Music Conversations. We hope you enjoyed this discussion and come back to listen to our other podcast episodes, either following us in your favorite podcast player or at amplifymusic.org or even on YouTube. And you can find a way to sign up for our email list and join our various groups on Facebook and on LinkedIn. We'd like to thank the Institute of International Business at the University of Colorado, Denver, who sponsors this podcast series, as well as the conference sponsors, Mia, UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music, the Creative Arkansas Community Hub and Exchange, Ben Zugel, Tully, and Lyric Find. We've had great support putting this conference together this year, and we look forward to continuing these conversations with you through this podcast. Thanks for listening. You have found one of our adventures now in the Marimel Podcast Network. You can find our shows everywhere that you listen to podcasts. We've got 
Amplify Music Conversations from the Amplify Music Conferences during the pandemic, Creative Innovators, and now Innovating Music. If you're interested in following up with us in any of these shows, please reach out on our websites, and you can find those in the show notes.